my goodness gracious, everybody. It is time for another episode of your favorite podcast, The Score. This is the podcast where we talk about pop culture and opera and classical music from the perspective of three Black queer arts administrators. As always, I am your host, Rocky Jones, and I'm here with my fabulous, splendid, wonderful co-hosts, First and foremost, the beautiful, luminous, intelligent Paige Reynolds, Yao Inawale. Hello, how are you? Hey. So you are on the road again this week. I feel like I haven't seen you in forever. How was your How was your trip? Where did you go? Yeah, I've been a Rolling Stone. Um, I've been, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, took a great cross country road trip um, and went to Atlanta. And stopped in Indianapolis on the way there and on the way back. And I drove over to South Carolina to see my auntie. And yeah, I had a good weekend with my spiritual house. Auntie's house is lovely as always. Mm. Um, This auntie, particular auntie, has like real Angela Bassett energy. Like, yes, she is... (laughs) gorgeous um melanated wears her hair like very short always has my whole Mm -hmm. life um and it's like you know like salt and pepper situation Mm -hmm. going on and she's just so kind and I think she's vegan and her skin is glowing and she always smells good and her house always smells good and it's everywhere okay so she collects African art and she cross stitches and her beautiful cross stitched African art is all over the house and it's an oasis. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that She's auntie goals. She is auntie goals. <laughs> shout out to Auntie. And shout out to my South Carolina South Carolina auntie, Auntie Kathy. Shout out Auntie Kathy. Hey, auntie Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we could not do the show without our other fabulous co-host, Dr. Lee Bynum. Hello, Dr. Lee Bynum. Hello. So do you want to hear something funny? Mm-hmm. Yesterday yeah. in the shower. It came to me the perfect tagline, not just for the show, for every time I'm introduced, if I ever end up on RuPaul and I have to enter the workroom for the first time, it was so good. I do not remember what it is. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) After all this build up. (laughs) I was thinking about it this morning too. And I was like, oh, I can't wait. Finally, it only took two full years. And then right when you were introducing Paige, I was like, I can't remember. What oh is my it? God. What is it? Right. Well, maybe it'll come back to you later in the God. show. <laughs> Please, if you think of it, interrupt whatever we are saying. <laughs> like, I got it. <laughs> Put it in the notes app of your phone or something so you always have it. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> well, that actually reminds me because I wanted to ask you because I don't think we've talked about season 15 of Drag Race at all oh on the show yet. Oh my God. So like, what are your thoughts and feelings? We're down to the top six. The This is my favorite season since season five. Really? Um, I'm, well, first of all, Sasha Colby I mean, is, is a national legend. treasure. I, and I was the saying, moment. I, I mean, she really is. And like, she is good enough that like the first time we met her, should have been like the first time that like most of the world met Pangina. Like mm-hmm. we, we don't need you on a first season because your skills are elsewhere. 
Um, but I also just have to say, Anitra. 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 When she she somersaulted, <laughs> landed in that Black Widow pose, and then immediately moved into a duck walk in the middle of hurting poor Marsha, Marsha, Marsha's feelings. And Marsha was doing a good job. She did it. She held her own. She really did. She she did. But to everybody out there who is like, this should have been a double Shantae, it, it couldn't have been because Anitra ate. You know, I the first time I saw it, I was thinking like, oh, why isn't this a double Shantae? And then I watched it again. You watched it again. And then I was like, it. oh, okay. Because yeah. I feel like the problem with like, lip sync for your lives often is that like maybe you're focusing on one person or it's very hard to take Mm -hmm. all of that visual information in so Mm -hmm. I feel like when it's a really good one when it's like you know Alyssa versus Tatiana or Mm -hmm. uh, Brooke versus Evie Mm -hmm. like I feel like you have to watch them several times to really just like soak in all of the fabulousness and goodness and athleticism that's happening. And so that's what I had to do with that one. And then I was just like, you know what, Marsha, you tried. (laughs) 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 No, but Paige, did you see it? Do you know what we're talking about? Oh Mm. my goodness. So this one queen like went back into like a crab walk and was like crab walking down the runway lip syncing and the other one did a full free willy over her beautiful Ooh. rainbow arc yeah yep. did like a flip yep. and then like landed like black widow and was like and this was all to doja cat yeah wow yeah it was wow. it was spectacular yeah it wow. was one of the best lip syncs it, it for me it's definitely a a top it's a top five they were they were both <laughs> good the song choice was right they both look good but Anitra was it, it was like I just have a, a different skill set mm-hmm. than a lot of you other girls out there mm-hmm. and I'm about to show you a very small part of it because mm-hmm. the season isn't over yet so yeah I'm obsessed Period. with season 15 absolutely obsessed <laughs> with it but I mean Sasha Colby just like give her her things just give her I, her I, crown I, give her her it's literally a race to third now, in my opinion, because Sasha won it maybe three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Like she had, she just won the season. And Anitra, for me, clarified during that lip sync Lala Perusa that whoever else is out here thinking whatever they're thinking, they should be thinking different things. They should be very focused on all stars yes. whenever they're coming back next and showing us how they've grown because this is not your season. I mean, and there's some other queens that are cute. Mistress is cute. I love Mistress. Lux is cute. Lux is Lux is very cute. Lux reminds me of a a young, nicer version of me. Yeah. And nicer. <laughs> I, I was a terror 20 years ago. <laughs> oh my God. And it's like, who does this remind you of? And I'm like, oh, leave me out of it. Oh, but, but yeah, yeah, I Dang. I know Lux, know know her well. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> if we had known each other in college, would we have been friends? Well, first of all, everybody loves Lee. Like I didn't make well, that yeah. up. That uh-huh. that is a thing. <laughs> okay, um, but <laughs> the the levels of shade that I was capable of Mm. in my college years is is like multiple seasons of drag race at once 
Um, I don't know where it came from, and it takes a lot to keep it tamped down. So. And I was a very sensitive, sad boy. <laughs> I don't know if it would have worked out at the time. I don't know if it would have worked out at the time. But I'm, <laughs> but I'm glad we both grow into who we are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's a reason y'all missed each other. You could have hated each other. <laughs> the fates knew what they were doing. Exactly. Yep. Yep. On that tiny campus where there were like five black people like the fact that we never even walk past each other there must be a reason for it there yeah. must be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh I understand my now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just like, I'm gonna go back to my room and listen to fiona apple and feel <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but speaking like, I don't know what's wrong with him, child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to get it together. <laughs> but speaking of sad feelings, I think we do need to go back to the not to bring the room down, but we got to talk about it. We do. Sunday, March 12th, um, there was a robbery mm. that occurred. At the Dolby Theater in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> Los Angeles, California. Um, the third award of the evening. We were all feeling so good in our in our feelings and our happiness watching Ki Hui Kwan win that award, getting all ready to enjoy our popcorn, raise our champagne, watch the luminous, incredible, legendary Angela Bassett finally go up on stage and receive her things that she has deserved for decades and decades and decades, but that was not to be. Uh -uh. Uh -uh. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think I went into mm -hmm. it after the Grammys, mm -hmm. knowing that that was a distinct possibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But still, yeah. Yeah. I open the floor. Yeah, I know. Yeah, trying I to know. <laughs> trying to find the words, um, be because I I watched everything everywhere all at once a couple of times because I really enjoyed it. Um, just like I watched Wakanda Forever a couple of times, um, and I have to say that I found it a surprising choice um, for many of the voters based both on the actual performance in the movie, because I, I would have assumed if that was your thinking for supporting actress, you would have seen Stephanie Hsu and maybe thought, recognized, understood. But even if you're going off of the body of someone's career, because, you know, that's, I feel like that's a very legitimate way to think about the Oscars, you know, I, and I don't mean this to, any shade to Miss Curtis. I mean, we literally share a first and middle name in like flip-flopped order. Like it's, I, I just don't understand because I saw the movie multiple times. Like, like I legitimately mm -hmm. don't understand. I mean, and Angela Bassett, not only did she do the thing, but has she not given everything to a life of making movies and television and, and theater? 
And it's just astounding to me that she's been nominated for Oscars, Emmys, Grammys, and Tonys, and not won any of them. Like, it, to me, it's like people are actively playing in her face, and I don't, it, it feels personal, and, and maybe it shouldn't, but it, it feels very personal in a way. And the nonsense the next day when people were showing a two-second clip of her immediate reaction and demanding to know why she wasn't performing for their comfort instead of legitimately feeling the disappointment that she was entitled to feel also kind of furthered for me that the whole thing seemed personal or or something right like and I'm, I'm just trying to make make sense of like the thing that happened because it's strange i'm like is it personal is it a personal dislike for Angela Bassett or is it a personal favoritism or nepotism that's working on behalf of mm -hmm. Jamie Curtis like mm -hmm. I'm just trying to make it make sense I don't think it is because like you look at like this year's like Academy Awards nominees luncheon class photo or whatever and literally you have Tom Cruise and whoever else was on the other side of her like with their arms all around Angela and like pointing and being like oh my god we're with Angela I think people love Angela Bassett which makes it all the stranger can can I say something that may be unpopular and and this is maybe because there just haven't been a lot of black people who've won acting oscars mm -hmm. or, or any oscars for that matter um the types of roles for which black people often win are different from what our white counterparts win because you, i don't know any black people who win for playing like kings and queens, kings and queens. right and mm -hmm. and those kinds of figures and we think about you know, the illustrious careers of, of Halle Berry and Denzel Washington and, and maybe the roles that got the attention and the roles that didn't, right? And when I think about, you know, other people who were not nominated this season, Viola, Danielle, any number of, of women from um, Sheila, Lashana, from uh, The Woman King, maybe America isn't ready to see us in certain kinds of roles and acknowledge a certain part of history that a lot of this country is trying to hide via what they're doing with critical race theory, right? Like, I'm, I'm trying to make connections because I feel like there's a message here and I need to, to read the message clearly. And I guess I just don't like what I'm seeing. Yeah, oh, I, I wish the audience yeah. could see the look each of us has on our face right now. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> yeah. But I want to get back to the point, though, Lee, that you were making before we started recording, just about how we're supposed to behave in these situations yep. when people are playing in our face and we're supposed to just mm -hmm. sit there and eat it and smile. Yeah. And it just reminds me, you brought up Gabby Douglas mm -hmm. when she was displeased <laughs> um, about, you know, what did she, she didn't win the gold medal. She won a silver right. medal or something so, like that. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. 
and she was not smiling and everybody was like, she should be happy that she won the silver medal or when Simone Biles was, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody was like, you know, why aren't you smiling? And she was like, because smiles don't win gold medals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we're just supposed to sit there and just be like thankful for the crumbs that we get. Right. I I guess like Angela was was just supposed to be happy that she was, she was nominated. Yeah. Yeah. As if she's supposed to just be happy to be in the same category with the Jamie Lee Curtis when it's like kind of the opposite way around. But I mean, they're like... <laughs> and it's not like to disparage Jamie Lee, but... to be in the category with Angela Bassett. Yes. Like, and it's not, right. yeah, it's not to disparage her, but it is just that like, there's also this idea that like, oh, but it's Jamie Lee Curtis and like yeah. her career and like... Uh, She's Hollywood and, royalty. You know, this is her mm-hmm. first one. And I'm like, you, Angela Bassett you can say every one of those things yeah. about, about like the child just refuse to give black people our things like yeah. doesn't make it any less true like the filmography that it's there yeah so yeah the material's there yeah. <laughs> like yeah. as far back as uh i think of like her role is tina turner yeah, yeah. Like, i mean yeah. come on Come on. That movie let's alone. Let's be serious. There is a scene in Malcolm X, which is one of my two that all-time too- favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's when she and Denzel are in the room and they're having this argument. And so as not to wake the kids. So like they're doing the like most of the scene Sada Voce. And it's it's this really beautiful acting scene because they're they're like holding the emotion right here they're they're going through the whole thing and it's not this yelling and screaming it's this whole thing of being about to explode and first of all anybody who's ever argued with their spouse knows exactly Mm -hmm. what that moment is but secondly it was this really well calibrated beautifully directed scene thank you spike lee that where, where, where were the awards for that and you know as much has changed over the course of our lifetimes, we are not in a place where Black people are acknowledged in the same way for their artistic contributions, right? I mean, we literally, the three of us literally met doing jobs around supporting people of color to be able to get into roles that they rightfully deserved at a company, right? So we should not be acting like, you know, these chances come along again. I mean, Angela Bassett has been in the game since at least 1985. Mm -hmm. This is only her second nomination. I mean, does she have another 29 years to wait before? You know what I mean? Like this, it's, it's wild. It's, it's kind of wild to me and that there are other actors who have five and six nominations who do not have her body of work or her skill set is, is also something that like, I don't not notice this. And I'm still mad about album of the year. And I'm going to be mad about it the next time we talk. Just so y'all know. That too. I have wondered, I'm like, is it one of those things of of, of just jealousy or being like, Mm -hmm. she's overrated? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're just, that's the obvious choice. Right. Right, so we're just gonna, <laughs> what? We're gonna go for the underdog. Yeah, yeah. I understand. Jackson Five American Dream. I was gonna say. Yes. I was about to say. Yes. Which is Captain Jackson? Yes. 
Come on. Waiting to exhale. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. No That right there needed its own Oscar. Come on. Waiting to exhale. Just wait. Walking away from the car. Why are they playing with her? I mean, she's she's literally been um, Betty Shabazz, Coretta Scott King, and Rosa Parks in different movies. She is Black history embodied, right? And she also has a bachelor's in African-American studies from Yale. I just like throwing that out there so that people also understand how completely well-rounded she is. She's yeah. not just a pretty face. She's yeah. not just good at saying other people's words. She happens to be what she is. And I, I guess I'd be mad about it too. I guess I'd be mad about it too. Yeah. I'd, but I guess we shouldn't upset. be surprised, especially the way that they played with Chadwick and his memory oh, a couple of years ago. <sighs> I forgot so, that I was mad about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. much to be mad about. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> well, James oh, Baldwin here. already said, you know, to be Black and aware of your surroundings is to be angry all the time. Right. Yes. And obviously I'm paraphrasing. Um, but, you know, that I, I think that it was true when he said it, and it's not less true today, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Yeah. <sighs> well. Yeah. But I have good news, though. Oh, so do I. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, what's your good news? Oh, I was just going to say my hair looks amazing today. No, your hair I'm, looks I'm fabulous. looking at myself right now. <laughs> yeah, like, no, no, okay. it looks great. <laughs> Enjoying this very proud of right now. <laughs> Always a silver lining. But I was going to say good news is that we have a fabulous guest today who oh. is, uh, yeah. you know, opening up doors, singing amazing roles around the world in places like the Met and the Gala and Real Teatro in Madrid and the Royal House in London, just one of the most sought after tenors in the world. And he's black. (laughs) 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 So that's amazing. (laughs) And of course, I am talking about the world renowned Lawrence Brownlee. We are honored to have him on the show today and to talk to him all about his incredible career, his upbringing, how he found opera, and perhaps a little spicy salsa surprise. (laughs) 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 So stay tuned and we will be right back with Lawrence Brownlee. All right, everybody, and we are back. We are so honored to have our next guest on the show. Lawrence Brownlee is a leading figure in opera, both as a singer on the world's top stages and as a voice for activism and diversity in the industry. Captivating audiences and critics around the globe, he has been hailed by the New York Times as an international star in the bel canto operatic repertory, one of the world's leading bel canto stars in The Guardian, and one of the most in-demand opera singers in the world today by NPR. This season finds him singing in some of the biggest opera houses in the world, from the Metropolitan Opera to Royal Opera House in Covent Garden to Teatro Real in Madrid. It will also see the premiere of an exciting new program titled Rising, which will feature 
uh, Lawrence Brownlee and pianist uh, Kevin J. Miller performing newly commissioned songs by an array of brilliant composers with texts drawn from James Weldon Johnson and other great Black writers of the Harlem Renaissance. In spring 2021, uh, Mr. Brownlee joined the Juilliard School as a distinguished visiting faculty member. He serves as artistic advisor for Opera Philadelphia, where his responsibilities include increasing and expanding audience diversity, advocating for new work, and liaising with the general director from the perspective of a performing artist. I think I know a little bit about some of that. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, he is a Grammy nominee and the winner of numerous awards and distinctions, including Male Singer of the Year at the International Opera Awards, the Richard Tucker Awards, the Kennedy Center's Marian Anderson Award, and the Opera News Award. Welcome to the show, Lawrence Brownlee. Yay! Yay! Thank you. <laughs> Such nice to be to with have. you. <laughs> nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. Yes, yes. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. Surviving. You know, uh, you just have to uh, make sure that you keep your head on straight when you're doing a lot. And so I'm trying to do that, but I'm doing well. Thank you. Good, good, good. And everyone else? No complaints so far. <laughs> We're sitting here talking to you. <laughs> so my first question for you, you are not only one of the most prominent Black opera singers working today, you are one of the most prominent opera singers working today. And so I kind of want to go all the way back um, to the very beginning. And how is it that you found opera or, or how did opera find you? What, what's the story? <laughs> You know, I have thought about this uh, a lot, and of course, I've talked about it uh, during my career. I started in church. I started singing. Uh, my father was a church choir director. I come from a Kojic church, which means Church of God in Christ, a very Pentecostal, very charismatic um, denomination, I guess you can call it, of church, and it was very active with music. We had a lot of instrumentation, a lot of instruments. And the Church of God in Christ, people say, get in where you fit in. Uh, so I, I gravitated towards the the instrumental side, wanting to play the drums, wanting to play other instruments. Um, the drums was my first love because it kept rhythm and it was loud. Uh, and so uh, it's interesting, you know, interestingly enough, I wasn't a fan of singing at all. Really? I was shy. I was shy about my singing, to be quite honest. I did not want to sing at all. Wow! But in, but uh, you know, I, I remember one of the first times that I sang in church. My father used to force our our family to sing. I'm one of six kids, and so I had three sisters older than me, than me, a sister younger than me, than a brother right after her. So we're seven kids in six years. So we're pretty close in age. Wow! And my father thought he was making a little group. By having all those, <laughs> he and my mom making a little group by having all all those kids together. But so when he would tell us, <laughs> someone say would say force us to sing. Uh, I used to have to sing, and and when I would sing a, uh, a few solos, I would get singled out for my voice, and people would start to respond to my voice in a positive way. The people at the church would say, "We want to hear you sing. We want to hear you next sing next Sunday." And even when my pastor would say, "I want you to sing a solo next Sunday," that whole week. I would have like a, a big knot in my stomach, be nervous about it, thinking, oh my gosh, I have to sing next Sunday. So I was not a fan of singing at all. I was more of an instrumentalist until I got into high school. Uh, and then I became a lot less shy about 
singing because at that time, you know, I had a bunch of friends and they, they told me that if I sang that the girls would think I was cute. And so I was a, a lot more bold about singing <laughs> then because I thought, out, you know, Ooh, look at him, he's cute or something like that. But uh, yeah, so it started out of being around music in church and then school. And then when I was in high school, I had a choir teacher that specifically said the tone of my voice uh, suited itself to classical music. And he was the one that encouraged me to give it a try, to listen to it and to see uh, if I, you know, I liked it. And so I got a chance to understand what it was. And then that was the beginning of my journey that I thought, wow, I guess I have this unique ability to sing classical music. Let's see where it takes me. Wow. <laughs> Like the, yeah. like the like the like the Jackson Five, the Brownlee Seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, we. They, I mean, they all still still. All, they all still still sing today, and uh, my parents still sing. My mom and my dad. My mother has a wonderful voice. My dad does too. But uh, yeah, music just was in our bones. It was in our DNA, and so it was easy for me to um, to. I thought I was going to be a lawyer and not a singer. But uh, when I decided, you know, to pursue music, it was because I thought that music could take me around, around the world. And so I was like, let's go. Let's do it. And so music was my path. And it certainly has. <laughs> that <was definitely laughs> an understatement. A couple of times. I think you were on. correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, they say do something you love as a job and it won't seem like work. And so obviously... Mm. Music is my life, and uh, of course, I love to share my talent with people. And so, travel is another big thing with me. And so, yeah, it it takes me around the world, and I and I'm loving this job. And my, you know, it's a passion of mine. I also uh, wonder, like, what has what has changed throughout the years? Like, there's so much change in the industry right now, of course. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, from from being a youngin to now being a world class <laughs> opera star, what's in what's inspiring you now, or 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 worrying you as an artist? Like, what what's your perspective now? Well, you know, a lot has changed, uh, and I've matured. It's been like close to twenty five mm -hmm. years that I've been doing this as a profession, and so you grow as a person, which means you grow as an artist. Uh, I think you contemplate things in a way that's different than when you were. Uh, younger. Now I'm 50 years old. I'm very proud to be 50. I tell people all the time that I graduated with people who didn't make it to 50. Many people didn't. And so it's a blessing. And so, you know, I take that attitude with what I've learned and what I've grown in to try to be a better artist, to to interrogate some of the material that that I that I perform in a different way, you know, to have more wisdom, to have more insight. Uh, people talk about playing certain roles, you know, when you're when you're 21 years old, as opposed to playing when you're 36 years old, when you live a little mm -hmm. bit more life mm -hmm. and you've had your heart broken and you have to play this, the, the, the unspoken innate nature of how you play and respond to some of these things uh, from a dramatic standpoint or a musical standpoint is different. And you maybe, maybe you can't put your finger on it. Maybe it's, it's not hard to, it's not easy to explain, but I think the the seasoning, you know, the, the, all the nuance and all the character that I think my life has uh, really shown me now, even as an artist, having survived, knock on wood, having survived COVID and, you know, and other things too. I think I bring a different perspective. So a lot has changed. And uh, there are some things that worry me, uh, you know, 
I guess, you know, as an artist, people talk about the, the future of this business, what we do. Are people ready to come back into the theater? Do they have an appreciation? Are we becoming more um, in tune or desiring of having things be served on a platter to us, meaning that we would rather watch something virtually or, you know, other styles of music that seem to be a lot more produced and in our face rather than the accessibility of some of classical music. Those are things that worry about me. But the thing I have hope for is that, you know, if we continue to try to do what we do in the best way, that people will still respond to it. This is an art form that has survived many, many years and is still here. It's still viable. I think it still touches people. Uh, and so I still have to evolve as an artist. And I remember having this conversation with my wife. I said, look, the thing she said to me one time, she was like, you've been so blessed in your career to now and what keeps you going? And I told her, I said, it's the hope that I haven't done my best thing yet. Hopefully there's something for me to discover, something for me to grow in, something that becomes my defining moment. And that is what keeps me on the pursuit of trying to be uh, a better artist, uh, to, to, to make an impact, to make my mark. And so those are the things that always kind of that I'm always mulling over as an artist and to try to also adapt, you know, the only way to stay relevant is to reinvent yourself. So continuously reinventing myself, thinking, pondering, uh, studying, feeling like I still have stuff to learn is what really motivates me now to continue on this path and try to be the best artist that I can be. Yeah. That feels so important, especially in, um, I would say like a cross classical music where we talk about, I mean, obviously we perform a lot of older work <laughs> and a mm -hmm. lot of things that get repeated over and over again, <laughs> mm -hmm. but having yes. like that fresh perspective and like evolution and allowing like you changing as a human being to even mm -hmm. inform it being different every time. You're reminding me of our conversation with Denise Graves um, when she's talking about Carmen and um how alive Carmen is for her as like a changing being character that she approaches differently every every single time. So yeah. You absolutely do. You have to feel like that person is doing something for the first time. But all that you have inside you is what informs that. You know, it's like the thing as I always say that when I'm performing a role, like recently, I just returned from Covent Garden in London and I was doing the Barber Seville, which I've done in pretty much every major theater in the world. I've done it probably 25 different productions of it. I still have to feel like the moment I hear this woman's name for the first time or I experience something, it has to be the first time. And so, yes, I can take everything that I have inside me to play this character better, but I know what's happening. I know what the outcome is. I know what Figaro does. I know all these other things, but it is my job as an artist to try to live in that moment. And what I am equipped with, the trials, the struggles, the different things that I have experienced in my life, I can draw on those things to try to play that character more authentically. So yes, I understand what Denise, you know, who's a friend of mine, what she's talking about, you know, she's done Carmen so many times. It's It's been the role that has been so important for her career and she can take the wealth of knowledge and experiences and life situations to be a more believable character and you understand mm -hmm. why she continues to be cast as Carmen. Mm -hmm. I'll say to that. 
<laughs> I remember yeah. being introduced to your work as a graduate student and being floored. I, I found it really, really thrilling and it was super exciting on a number of levels, not the least of which that um, as a black tenor, I hadn't seen us before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it just kind of hit me in this way that I remember thinking, I wish that I could have seen this, you know, 10, 12 years before and, and just imagined myself in a different kind of a, a way in the performing space over the course of my um, coming of age. And I'm curious if, and I would imagine you have heard <laughs> this kind of thing from many, many people before. And I'm curious if that creates um, an extra sense of responsibility or even extra opportunities for you as an artist, knowing that there is, you know, this population of us that is, is so excited by the fact that you get to represent us at the level that you do. Well, thank you uh, for saying that, you know, I think about the people that inspired me. And uh, of course, in the last 20 years or so, we see social media being such an active part of what we know. So it's easier to go to YouTube today than it was when I was getting started more than 25 years ago and not necessarily having so many examples of people or such a prominent, if I should say, example, someone who's doing this, if you want to say it at the highest level. Uh, last week, I got a chance to share the stage with George Shirley. And mm. I remember, wow. I remember we honored him in Houston Grand Opera. There was an event that uh, I was a part of creating years ago. It was, you know, it was an idea that I came up with years ago. Uh, and it's called Giving Voice. And that's basically, uh, Houston Grand Opera has a longstanding tradition of giving African Americans uh, opportunities to sing leading roles. And so I was thankful uh, that they had done that. And I remember seeing the fruit or, you know, the result of them thinking in that way. When I was doing a show there, it was such a diverse cast. And I said, this is beautiful. This is the way our art form should be. It should be invited, inviting and inclusive. And I, I went to the administration and I said, as an artist, as a leading artist, I would like to be a part of this. Can we have some type of community concert where we go into the community and we present what art is and let them gravitate to this art form in their own way? Uh, and so in this concert, this is the fourth iteration we did of it uh, last week. And so one of the things we did was honor Mr. Shirley. And so Mr. Shirley, for me, was a point of reference. It was a uh, seeing him made me believe that I could be an opera singer at, at a very high level. And we didn't have the social media that told us all the wonderful things he had done. And he did a lot of things and he is the pioneer that I looked up to. Uh, thankfully, my first agent was a student of his. So he, he gave me the opportunity to be closer or understand what the significance of what Mr. Shirley had done. And so uh, I remember just being so inspired by Mr. Shirley and just believing in those times that were difficult, that we can do this and we can sing at La Scala and we can sing at the Met and all these other things because someone had done it. And so me now uh, getting the opportunity to be more visible from an Instagram tweet or a Twitter post or a Facebook post, uh, Facebook post, a lot of people see me and a lot of young African-American, uh, not only tenors, but baritones, basses, sopranos even come up to me and they thank me and they tell me that I'm inspiring to them. And I think the best way to be an inspiration to them is to try to continue to do what I do, uh, can try to 
try to do it at a high level for them to see me and think of someone who works hard at that sacrifices that tries to bring a sense of elegant, you know, uh, professionalism or excellence. And so I accept it that people do uh, look up to me. I appreciate it, but I, but I hope when they look at me that they realize that I'm looking at those pioneers that came before me, the Simon Estes and the Martina Arroyo, and of course, Miss Price and George Shirley and so many other people that opened the doors for me. Uh, and that's the thing that inspires me. So as they're inspired by me, I'm inspired by them. And so uh, to continue the tradition, we have a rich, wonderful tradition tradition in this classical business. And I just want to continue to be a good steward of my instrument, but also have a great deal of respect for the people that opened the doors for me and uh, just continue to do my best. Yeah, I I find it really inspiring when I see artists of your stature really just digging into the work of equity and diversity, especially given my job title and <laughs> what I do for a living. <laughs> um, I just find it really, really exciting. And so I'm curious just what your viewpoint is on sort of the last couple of years. There's been really this huge push throughout the in, uh, throughout the opera industry to um, you know, diversify our our staffs and our our the our repertoire, our artists, and our audiences. And I'm just curious, like, what your perspective is on that work that's been happening, and what do you think that companies can do um, to better support um, artists of color and staffs of color, and and to you know create opera companies that more accurately reflect the communities that we serve. It is so crucial. It's so important. And I'm inspired by the work that has been done in the last few years. And, you know, when we look at 2020, we look at 2021, we look at the events of that time. Mm -hmm. Of course, COVID is that thing that will live on for many, many, many years, um, you know, and, and how it affected our world and our version of the world in the time that we lived it. Um, we were all sitting at home when we got a chance to witness witness what happened to George Floyd. If we had not been sitting at home, if we hadn't all been grounded, essentially, you know, and forced to be at home, we wouldn't, the impact of George Floyd's death would have never, I mean, it probably would have had some importance, but it would have been probably similar to Trayvon or probably similar to, similar to uh, you know, Garner, Eric Garner, or probably similar to Sandra Bland. These things made, a ripple, if you call it sadly, because it happened so often, but it didn't make it didn't make the wave per se that the George Floyd thing that became an international phenomenon. People are like, "Oh my gosh!" I had so many people writing me from Romania and Italy and saying, "Oh my gosh!" because we all were sitting at home, and so the realization that not only in the treatment of George Floyd by those those police officers in Minnesota but just in so many other areas of the world, people realized it. I, I remember people, general directors and other people in high positions calling me, asking could they have a conversation about, oh my gosh, is this really how it is? And for me, they were so blown away by the fact that I was like, this is the norm. This is nothing different. This is something that we deal with every day. And so there was a shift and I think there was a real um, a, a, a real authentic shift of, of an awareness of that we need to be in spaces. We need to have opportunities. We need to have the doors open for us by allies, 
by people who are not just people of color, but people who want to see, who really say they fight for equity, for them to put their money where their mouth is, for them to open the doors and give the opportunities that are necessary or people are worthy of those opportunities. And so in that sense, I think I've seen a lot of people wanting to do that in companies like these various companies that I've been involved with creating the space for us. And so for a long time, even when I was an undergrad, when I was in graduate school, you know, all throughout, you know, I was in student government and I was in different things. And even like back in the day, like my fraternity, I was doing some initiatives with them about just like inclusion and equity and importance of us being in certain spaces. So it is just ingrained in me. And so working with, uh, for, for example, Opera Philadelphia now, you know, part of my job, the expansion of uh, different things, I constantly uh, go to them and say to them, like, okay, what are we going to do? Where are the opportunities? We need to have a more diverse look, d- looking season. Why is the mm-hmm. season 89% white and 2% black when you have tons of artists there and why it's at every different level it needs to be someone of color not only in the wait staff or the ushers but you need to have people in administration and people in development and people in other things and be intentional in it so maybe you have to go and do some you know i don't want to say affirmative action but you need to make sure that we're giving people the opportunities for advancement in these spaces so it is a part of my continuous work. It's a part of my passion. It's a part, of, it is something that I am used to and have having done it in so many different spaces, as I said, in undergrad and grad school and and being a leader and seeing my parents do some, some of this type of work uh, is, is something that's natural for me. I consider it a, a responsibility, but one that does not weigh me down. It is something that I feel like I am equipped to do. And so I want to try to use all the things that I can because of the cachet and the credibility that I have to be able to open people's ears and let them believe in what can happen because they can bank on the things that I've done before in the past. So that's how I try to lead. And I I always embrace it as an opportunity for me to make a change that is meaningful. Wow. One follow-up though. Sometimes I find, you know, because it's not a linear path. Sometimes it feels like it is two steps forward, three steps back. (laughs) So how do you keep from letting it weigh you down? What keeps you optimistic? Well, I I think the thing that keeps me optimistic is that progress is made. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like because of a lot of these people who are leaders in some of these institutions, um, black or white, now they're they're colleagues of mine. They're people in the same age bracket. And so I feel like I have a certain sense of accessibility to these people that I can say, look, I knew you were when you couldn't put two dimes together to buy <laughs> a cheese, you know, a cheese it, you know, or I'm just saying, I, I knew you win. So when we had that relationship before, now, that you're in a position where you can make a change, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. And so I feel like the relationships that I built with people, uh, there's a sense of trust. You know, for example, Ryan Ryan Taylor is one of my long, 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 long time friends, and he's a general director in, in Minnesota Opera. And so he and I can talk in a way because we've known each we've known each other since our young artist days, since we were doing competitions to get together. And so when you have those people that you have long uh, careers with, there is a sense of trust. There's a sense of, of 
being comfortable with them and 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 knowing their intentions and being working in a way that is productive so you can make things happen. So what keeps me going is that even if I hit a door that's closed, I can probably navigate shift and go through another door. And there's a way to make the things happen. Do we make the progress at every level the way we want to? Not always. And it seems like you have to knock on about five doors that it should take one. It should only take one door to mm-hmm. knock on. But uh, I am hopeful. I continue to hope. I'm an optimistic person in nature. Is that if those first four do- doors are not open, that that fifth, fifth door will open. If it doesn't, the sixth one will. And so as exhausting as it can be, uh, when I think the payoff is when it happens and you feel like, okay, there's more to be done. And so I don't feel like uh, we're done making progress. And and I just continue to believe that uh, uh, we just keep working until we stop. And so the, I don't get tired by it. And I just look at uh, every day I wake up as another opportunity. Uh, sometimes you make this much progress and sometimes you make a, a whole heck of a lot of progress in a short period of time. And so you just have to take uh, that as it comes to you and continue to move forward. It's good advice. <laughs> I also think about how, you know, artists often have um, other interests, passions that maybe aren't in the forefront that also, you know, feed us, that energize us. And, you know, one of your friends may put a little bug in our ear about salsa, <laughs> maybe some DJing. Something like that. <laughs> so I'm curious about whatever else you'd like to share about your other interest or the oh salsa my gosh. business. Yeah. So I, I'll just start with salsa. Salsa is a great passion of mine. Uh, it has been one of the keys that has unlocked the world to me, I have to say. Uh, I started salsa dancing uh, in 2000, I believe it was. So that was about 23 years ago. 22 or 23 years ago when I was in the Young Artist Program in Seattle Opera. And honestly, I'll be honest, the reason I went the first time is because I thought this one girl was cute. And she is the one who said, <laughs> we should, said we should go salsa dancing. But I have to say, and I give her credit, we always talk about it. She's a good friend of mine now. As I said, because of you, salsa has changed my life. But I went with her to this place called China Harbor in Seattle. And I remember just being absolutely mesmerized by the dance of salsa. And I just thought, okay, this is not going anywhere with this girl. We're just friends and that's fine. You know, that was a decision, mutual decision. She's cute, but no, nothing's happening there. But the dance, oh my God, <laughs> where, where has this been my whole life? And so I started in, I remember uh, I went to that's this place, China Harbor, and I was like, okay, who teaches this stuff? And there was a teacher, a group, a couple there that said that they give lessons. So before the next lesson, which was Tuesday, they said, if you want to maybe go listen, you know, go buy a CD or something like that just to get the sound of the music, do that. So I went to this one place and I bought shoes and CDs and music and everything else, and I was ready. And from that moment to probably now, uh, I have just been crazy about salsa. But it has been the thing that, again, as I said, unlocked the world where I have so many friends around the globe. And just recently I was in London. I had a few days off. I went to Slovenia 
and it was a salsa congress. It was like a three-day festival where you dance from sunup to sundown, essentially. And so I remember going there after the pandemic, and I saw at least 100 friends of mine from salsa around the world, people from London and Paris and, and Milan and New York City and just Bratislava and Hungary, people from all over the place who love this dance. So salsa has been just a great opportunity to see the world and experience friendships, grown friendships because of our shared love for this this art form. And so, uh, yeah, it's one of the things that I love. So that's a big, big, big hobby of mine. Uh, but I have too many hobbies and my personality mm -hmm. is I'm like either hot or cold about it. So uh, in no particular order, I am salsa is big, but I'm also very big into tennis, playing tennis, uh, ping pong, some people call it, but I call it table tennis. Uh, photography is a huge passion of mine. And I Ooh. usually travel with a large uh, suitcase that is dedicated for all my lenses and my camera bodies. I have more than one usually that I travel with. Uh, so those are the big ones. Uh, but I love the idea of, even if I'm a professional opera singer, being a student at something. And I don't have an issue with being, being at the very basic level, learning and, you know, feeling like I have to be disciplined in order just to get to a certain level. So uh, I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly growing. And taking on something new from the from the beginning doesn't scare me. I don't mind being a rookie or just very, uh, you know, green at something because it's, it'll put me on the path to learning. And I think uh, that I think that actually kind of spills over to my what I do, uh, and it gives me a great deal of respect for the things that for the things I've done already. Uh, but it keeps me on the path to even you know as people pursue what I do, you know, or a certain level of what I do as an artist. I think. Uh, there is something, there's interplay in that, and it keeps me, all of us, learning and growing. Yeah, exactly. Always growing and learning. I love I it. Wish. I think, <laughs> also, like, I love that, uh, shout out to, like, also skills and things that you don't have to monetize. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> this day and age, I'm like... <laughs> Right. I don't have to pay yes. my rent. I don't have to pay my rent. You know, and, and that's the thing, too. Like, for example, photography, I've always said that I have the equipment and not the skill. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things. <laughs> and, 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 and if my wife sees this, she's going to laugh because I always feel like I have to have the best of something. And she's like, you're a beginner in photography. I'm like, yes, but I need the top camera from Sony. I just need it for whatever reason. But I love the fact that several of my colleagues use my photos as their headshots. And so that, you know, I'm not a professional, but I want to work and to, to gain the knowledge that I can have, have a nice output. But again, as you said, don't have to monetize it. I don't have to pay my rent with uh trying to be a photographer. I have a great deal of respect for professional <laughs> photographers. <laughs> I'm not one. <laughs> I just wish everybody could see in the audience the way your face lit, lit up when she said salsa. <laughs> I, 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 might go, I might go salsa dancing tonight. So that's probably uh -huh. why. <laughs> yes. Yes. Swivel them heads. <laughs> Well, I know that we are um, sort of getting to the end of the time we have with you. And I, I wanted to know if you had any perspectives or things that you may want to share 
with some of our colleagues who sit in administrative positions at opera companies and other presenting bodies in classical music. Um, things that maybe they want to know, things that they might want to consider, words of wisdom uh, for our listeners out there. Yeah, as I said before, you know, now there's a shift that's happening with many of my colleagues who are taking on positions uh, uh, in various places, and many are desiring to do more. Uh, they are, they're looking to be artistic directors. They're looking to be deans of colleges, and there is a group already of people doing that. But I think that there's a number of people who want to push that even further. And um, I, I feel like the day, you know, the tools that we have, the skills that we have, the history that we have, the knowledge of things is the things that we should uh, really try to go forward and to, 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 you know, obtain these positions in these jobs. Uh, a young gentleman wrote me the other day and he was like, I really want to be a stage director and I feel like I have something to say and I feel like finally my voice is going to be respected. And when you see some of the stories that are being told around the world, I think there is hopefully um, you know, space and agency for us to be able to tell certain stories. And so I, I'm encouraging people to go out there and to be confident in what you know and your 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 knowledge of this and your his the history of opera and and and, and performance. And you you know, I have some friends that they could tell you every performance that Price did. And they can tell, you know, those things are as valuable in the history and some of the performance traditions are as valuable as some of the, the other things that other people have that are getting them in these spaces. And for them to realize they have more sometimes than some of these people that are already in these spaces. And so myself as a colleague, or if you want to say a mentor, I'm very encouraging of them, but I'm trying to do all I can as well to be uh, to be a conduit or to be someone that helps them to achieve these because uh, these positions because other people have done that in the past and so being an ally being a supporter being a promoter you know even with this project that I'm doing now this rising uh, that is the music of the um, the writers of the Harlem Renaissance you know what I wanted to do is give voice to some of these young African American composers you know, and to take the music of African-Americans to help to give them sometimes, not that I, you know, it's not all about me, but, you know, sometimes the spotlight that I have, you know, allows other people to come into that and to be seen in a way that maybe they wouldn't be. But as someone who is a frequent, frequent recitalist, uh, I think, you know, people know that I am doing a lot of stuff in this, this discipline. I think them adding to the canon of art song and this being more highly visible because people who are not necessarily African-American will see this. And for them to know these people who are not African-American, that this is music for you to also perform. And there's other things out there that these voice, these composers, these young gifted composers that you don't know of, or you didn't know of, now you will. Because people like myself, people like Russell Thomas, people like Will Liverman, people like some of these other people are constantly programming these composers but also this music and this material that it will become much more mainstream and so uh it is about us working together collectively for that push to happen for that expansion that growth that visibility i think is important and so that's what i want to continue to do and so um 
sometimes, you know, it makes an impact just you doing you doing what you're supposed to do. And so uh, as long as I have the the platform to be visible and to for people to follow my tweets and my and my Instagram postings and to be able to understand about uh, various things I'm doing, I hope that this will push push forward and then provide you know opportunities for people in these spaces in administration also in performing in leading um and uh and that when we get there and get the opportunities people will understand and know that we will do good work and we will do meaningful stuff for this art form thank you for using your platform like that um i think it matters a lot that bit of exposure and and also um, having it come from certain people really does mean it carries a different kind of a weight at times. So thank you for that. And I was so excited when I was I was reading about Rising, um, you know, using text from the Harlem Renaissance. It reminded me of our conversation with Ade Williams um, a couple of months ago, who hosts the Harlem Connection. And just like, yeah, we are a part of this history. We are a part of this legacy. We've always been here and we're always going to be here and it's so exciting. So can you talk a little bit more about that project and who is involved and what some of the inspiration um, behind the music was? Yeah, so so the inspiration behind the music uh, was, it was basically some of these people that I had worked with before and uh, having heard their work and uh, feeling that they had they had their own voice as far as like what they should put out there. Um, you know, I listen to some of these other composers that are not African-American and I see what their output is and with no disrespect to them, it's fine. And there's some really wonderful things. But I hear some of these young African-American composers, I'm like, that's special. That's the, you know, this needs to have the space. And unless we sometimes, artists, you know, at a certain level, do it open the doors for them the door won't the door won't be open and so when you think about the writings of so many people langston hughes w.e du bois you know weldon um hurton zornil thurston hurston 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 excuse me uh zornil thurston hurston i think it's thurston. Yeah, <laughs> you got it right i was like why did i say thurston but i mean there's so many other people james weldon and uh gosh um i could just tell you uh there, there's so many voices that are really uh, have the they they can explain and talk about our existence in this country and and the struggles, but also our triumphs, and they can put their finger on the pulse. And some people who are not African American won't even realize that what they're reading is actually writings from the Harlem Renaissance and something that has become uh, a soundbite or something. If if somebody hears "Still I Rise," some people may say, "Okay." You know, that seems like that's motivational, but that is my Angelou, isn't it? That's like some of these things that become, that are ingrained to the story of America, not just African-American, the story of America, which is, we are at the, you know, African-Americans are at the center of that. Uh, that's, that is the thing I wanted to give agency to and give an opportunity to be even more a part of the discussion when we talk about, uh, just even programming art song recitals. And so, yes, I wanted to do this. I wanted to take these people that I admire and that I, you know, that I, that I, I'm inspired by. And I remember reading a book called The Choice of Weapons years ago when I was 12 years ago, I mean, 12 years old. And 
and reading, you know, stuff by Langston Hughes and reading stuff by, oh gosh, and there's so many other, so many other people that, you know, that you grow up on and how this inspired you, somebody else is going to listen to this and be inspired. And so I think um, that's, that's the reason why I wanted to do this project. And so um, I was inspired by some of my other friends who are creating projects to do the same thing in my own unique way. And so that's how this whole evolution of rising came. Um, but that, you know, the new compositions coupled with things uh, by Margaret Bonds, she had, she's a part of rising. Um, Robert Owens is another one who this music was um, produced before I, I mean, I recorded it recently, but this is music that I listened to and was inspired by as well. So it all came together to be a very meaningful and special project uh, that I'm excited to take to all these various cities, these various cities, nine cities right now, and about ten cities next year uh, that I'm that I'm hoping to take it to, and so this will give it an opportunity to get to put this front and central in front of a lot of people, and so I'm excited about that. That's wonderful. I cannot wait. So, where can people find out more about Rising and more about what's happening with Lawrence Brownlee? <laughs> so, <laughs> and and what's so, coming up? <laughs> so yeah, well, I mean, the rising tour is starting actually in two days. You oh know? my god! And okay. so, <laughs> yeah, so in two days in Boston, so we'll hit Boston and Atlanta, New York, Carnegie Hall, Philadelphia, um, where out uh, Washington D.C. is mm-hmm. nine cities total. Uh, so we're getting a chance to take this um, all over. Kevin Miller is my good friend, and he will be at the piano. And he's been a part of it since the beginning. But, you know, the composers are Joel Thompson, wonderful young composer, Joel Thompson, Damian Sneed, Jamin Barnes, Brandon Spencer, Carlos Simon, and, um, oh gosh, who has the other one? Who's the other one? Uh, Sean O'Peplo. And it's just wonderful, thoughtful composers who have something to say. So I'm excited to put their music in front of people. And so people can, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm pretty active in social media and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I guess people still use Facebook. And I stay pretty active. Uh, I do it in my own way. I'm very silly. You know, I like to have fun on social media, so I like to make fun. But I, I mean, people tell me always that they want to stay abreast, you know, to what I'm doing. And so I'll have the information out. So if you look for Lawrence Brownlee on any of those platforms, I think Brownlee Tenor, I think it is, is where uh, the information is either there or on my website, which website, which is I think lawrencebrownlee.com. So right. I'll be engaged. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, all of those links also will be in the show notes, um, so everybody can can find those links there. Lawrence Brownlee, thank you so much for being on our show. This was an honor. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, this has been nice. Been very comfortable, like chatting around, like you said around the table with something brown, right? Some more potent potent than others. (laughs) I'm glad that's all we want. We want a a comfortable, good time. And um, good luck with everything. And have fun at the Salsa Club tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I will. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. And we 
are back. We just want to thank the fabulous Lawrence Brownlee once again for joining us. And I hope he had fun swinging his hips. (laughs) That was the club. (laughs) But this brings us to our favorite segment of the show. Are you ready, Paige? Ready. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, four. It's peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly time, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly. Ooh. Okay. Ooh, it's the sensuality for me. The, the quiet storm tagline. Yes, you know? it's giving <laughs> All right, everybody, that is correct. It is time for Pure Black Joy. This is the segment where we talk about all of the Black people, places, things, ideas that are bringing us joy this week. So who would like to go first? I can go first. I was actually going to say you should go first because okay, I feel like you never ready. go first. Well, thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, just like okay. So everybody knows my hometown is Washington D.C., so mine is very D.C. focused. Um, but I just thought it was really cool that um, on Friday, March tenth, um, for the very first time a White House press briefing was presided over by three Black women. Of course, we have... I know, right? So, of course, we have Karine Jean-Pierre, who is the White House press secretary. But we also had the director of the Office Office of Management and Budget, Shalonda Young, and the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, Cecilia Rouse. And they are all the first Black women to occupy their positions. And they were there to present the president's new budget, which included taxes, tax increases for the rich, um, increased spending on fighting climate change and health care and the military, which wah, wah, three out of four. Um, but I just, <laughs> I just think it is kind of amazing, obviously, you know, with our... Republican friends in the House of Representatives, this particular version of this budget will likely not um, pass as is. But it's just amazing to have three Black women in these positions working on these issues for the American people and sitting there in the White House press room, like presenting this budget, answering these questions. I it's just, it's amazing, you know, and I just think about like, you know, being a little kid. And I remember one time my dad, you know, was testifying in front of a, a house committee. And oh, interesting. Well, you know, grew up in Washington. My dad worked on the hill. It, it happened from time to time. But that was that moment that I was just like, oh, okay cool I guess we can do that (laughs) that's interesting um but like you know to be able to to watch these three women who are just at the top of their game so smart so just amazing and accomplished um up there like getting their flowers and running the country I'm just like yes work 
We need more. Running the country. <laughs> more, more, more. <laughs> more of that, please. So that's my pure black joy. I love it. Love it. I'm happy to share mine. More, uh, more black lady excellence. Um, happening over at, um. Uh, Netflix this time um, from the team of this series I watched called African Queens. Mm. Y'all, it is fire. First of all, I love the concept. <laughs> African Queens like covers real life like African Queens um, whose, you know, stories have not been uplifted as much as they should um, in our history classes and textbooks and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So, um, I know one of the uh, producers is Jada Pinkett Smith. Shout out to her. Um, and this first series or first season that I watched fo focuses on Queen Njinga of uh, Ndombo and Matamba. She's so from the Angola region. Y'all, y'all, y'all. It is so <laughs> It's so good. I mean, her story, I've heard of Njinga before as like, you know, a fierce warrior queen and one who resisted uh enslavement of uh by the portuguese as well but just to hear the breadth of her story and they like prioritize like having black women um historians talking about oh. her as well mm. they also talk about they uh have someone on there who's speaking who knows in jinga's history and is a modern day like woman ruler in africa i forget where she's from um I wish I could remember, but it just that they also, you know, they focus on hearing her story from us as well. It's just yeah. incredible. The reenactments are incredible. The actors are good. The costumes are so good. Just they focus on like showing that these are like were modern civilizations, you know, that we had like any other place in the world at that time that were, you know, purposely destroyed by mm. enslavement and you know, also, also, you know, challenging narratives that say that we didn't fight back or that, yeah. you know, people mm -hmm. on the continent mm -hmm. didn't fight back. Yeah. It shows these people going hard, trying to keep their people from being sold away, making really tough decisions at times about who to ally with, who not to ally with, and, you know, what you do to try to hold on to as many of your people as possible. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. It's so well done. It's so mm. well thought out and nuanced. And I was, I was tired the day I went in to watch it. I was in Atlanta. <laughs> I had been in ritual all day with my spiritual house. I was glued to the TV. I binge watched it. I almost watched the series. I How many stop. episodes are there? Four episodes. Okay. Four episodes. Yeah. I think they're about an hour each or something. I was up till like 2 a.m. child until I finally <laughs> was just like, okay, I can't, I can't, but this is so good. I don't want to take my eyes off. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, African Queens in Jinga. Ugh. So okay. good. Shout out I'm to gonna write that down because you know I love a little piece of nonfiction. So it, it, right up. That <laughs> sounds mm -hmm. wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope to see future seasons, many future seasons. I do too, because I feel like shows like this are are literally important, right? Like this, this yeah. is how kids learn to locate themselves outside of a a dominant narrative that it it's not the one that any of us should be subscribing to, right? So I'm Absolutely. super glad Absolutely. you told me that. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm gonna 
Make the kids watch it. Kids being me and Damien. <laughs> yes, watch and it, McGonagall. talk about it. <laughs> and McGonagall. And McGonagall. Watch it, talk about it, because I don't want them to pull a Lovecraft country on it. So, you know. I forgot I was mad about that. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. I'm going to call this the mad episode. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Black queens, I have one about one of my favorite uh, public figures in the last couple of years, Queen Z, Zaya Wade, to her mm. friends yes. and the rest of the world, the daughter of Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union. Um, she is on her first magazine cover this month, Dazed Magazine, talking about fashion, family, um, how to set boundaries, and also high school, because mm. that is what we do when we're 15. Um, and I think it is such a huge win for representation. I think it is such a huge win for uh, queer kids everywhere, specifically mm -hmm. queer and trans black kids. And I know that if, you know, <laughs> this had come out 30 years ago, it would have meant the world to me to, to mm -hmm. feel like that yeah. we were being seen. And I, I think, you know, you don't have to go very far to hear about all of the nonsense happening in a lot of state houses right now where people are acting as if they can legislate us away. And I just love the fact that she's out there, that she is who she is, that she is as supported as she is by Dwayne and Gabrielle. Um, and, and it means a lot to have her here. So I'm going to buy several copies, physical copies of a magazine, a thing oh, that wow. I don't know that I've done. I don't even remember the last time like I had my hands on an actual magazine, but I feel like this is uh, worth, you know, like watching African Queens, like keep the numbers up to let mm -hmm. them know that like mm -hmm. this matters, we care and we come out to support stuff like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Let me go buy uh five cop all the copies that are on the, on the shelf yeah, the literally. let me just go do that, go do that. <laughs> yep mm -hmm. wait, wait just so everybody knows what's the name of the magazine again dazed d-a-z-e-d okay yeah. everybody go get dazed magazine and shout yes. out to zaya wade because that is just just go pick up a stack and pass them out mm -hmm. how about that just to like just <laughs> get one to your friends, get one to the mama, leave one at your neighbor's door. You know? Let's just do that. <laughs> well, shout out to all those wonderful people. Thank you for keeping our spirits up during this mad, mad week. <laughs> ain't that the truth <laughs> oh my goodness gracious so i think that's going to be it for us today um just want to once again thank lawrence brownlee for being with us and of course thank all of you for listening and thank my wonderful co-host for being with me as always Aww, thank you <laughs> so you can help us out greatly um by leaving a review on apple podcasts or leaving us five stars on spotify or anywhere you can leave reviews it really 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 helps get the word out about our show and don't you want us to be successful <laughs> fair question very fair, it's a question. fair question it's a fair question <laughs> but yes please please do that subscribe um wherever you listen to find podcasts and um 
uh tell your friends all about us because we're we're fun um (laughs) any words of wisdom before we go I think I just kind of want to reiterate what we what we said last week because this um, effery is still happening in the state houses, um, and just send yes. some love and support out to our trans and non-binary siblings. Yeah, and that we love you, and I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. And just please, everybody, do what you can. Write to your representative tell them that this is nonsense and that they have actual things um that need their attention trains are derailing every five seconds Mm -hmm. people are dying by the thousands from covid still still every day (laughs) there are there are actual pressing concerns that are not people who want to not to live their lives on a gender binary living their lives mm-hmm. normally <laughs> and in yeah. peace yeah. so yeah. stop oh, worrying word. about what's in other people's underpants yes 100 yeah. yeah that is not wisdom. your it's not your business <laughs> it's not your business okay so that's Ooh. all i got <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's all i got um all right well we will be back in two weeks with uh, the incredible maestro William Henry Curry will be on the show. Um, A legendary figure in the world of classical music and we are so happy to have him on the show. Icon. Icon. Iconique. And if you don't know him, you will after next week's show. (laughs) Um, And I think that's it. All right, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.